This episode of I Save That Podcast is made possible by Eloquist Healthcare and its popular Mastisol liquid adhesive. Mastisol is a superior, non-water soluble adhesive that reduces the likelihood of vascular access device dressing disruption. Secure your dressings with the lasting protection of Mastisol liquid adhesive. To learn more, visit www.mastisol.com. You have arrived at Season 2, Episode 12 of the I Save That Podcast. This one is made possible uh, by support from Eloquest, which makes Mastasol, liquid medical adhesive used to secure dressings, tapes, and medical devices. Uh, This is a very packed episode. We've got Dennis Ernst, the foremost phlebotomy expert on the planet, talking with us, as well as uh, chats with both Lee Steer and Elena Nelson-Squires on nursing leadership and blended teams. But first, Judy, the AVA Scientific Meeting is coming up in a couple of weeks. You want to tell the good people listening to the podcast what the big reveal in Vegas is going to be. The big reveal is we are publishing our resource guide for vascular access, which is also the recommended study guide for board certification in vascular access. Nerding out. Awesome. Nerding out. It's exciting. We have, it's sitting right now. We're, we're at the final, final draft basically, but we're sitting at 150 pages of content, high def videos, um, high def resolution images and pictures. And we're pretty excited about this. This is going to be great. This is a hell of an asset. Would you say it's indispensable for anyone that's, I don't know, practicing healthcare anywhere? Yes. Yes. If you touch vascular access, if you touch patients and they all have vascular access, you need this resource guide. It is packed. I'm very excited to get this published. I, I having taken a peek at it before, I will tell you that the, the videos that you've put in there really take it to another level. So I'm excited for it to be published also. It's going to be great. Thanks, Eric. It's going to come out both in print, but really the folks that want, you want to go get the digital version because that's where all the hyperlinks work. That's where the videos will play. And the images that you can actually really, really zoom in on and see some detail. So I do. I need to shout out to the the team of SMEs, the subject matter experts that created this. Blake Hodgkiss and his team have worked countless hours to put this together. So big shout out to those guys. Yeah, that sounds great, Judy. And as we return from break, uh, we'll be talking to Elena Nelson Squires about the upcoming Ava Scientific Meeting, as well as her role in nurse, nursing leadership ahead of that interview that Ramsey mentioned with Dennis Ernst and Lee Steer. So please stay tuned, uh, and thanks for listening. Vascular access dressing disruption contributes to increased risk of catheter-related bloodstream infections. However, maintaining dressing integrity for up to seven days as recommended by best practice guidelines, can be a challenge with the rate of unscheduled dressing changes reportedly as high as 67%. Adding Mastisol liquid adhesive to your dressing change protocol and kits improves the adherence of the dressing and protection of the insertion site. Increased dressing duration reduces frequency of dressing changes, saving time and associated material costs while improving compliance with infection prevention best practices. Maximize dressing adherence and minimize risk of infection with Mastasol. Visit mastasol.com for more information or to request a trial. And 
We're now joined by Elena Nelson-Squires, who has 30 years in nursing, most of which uh, have taken place within vascular access. She's got certifications in both oncology and vascular access, being vascular access board certified, and currently manages a team of 12 vascular access specialists for three Northern Colorado Banner Health facilities. Uh, Elena is also the 2017 Regional Colorado Nightingale Luminary for Leadership uh, winner, and she will be speaking at this year's AVA Scientific Meeting. She joins us today from Colorado. Hi, Elena. Hi, how are you? Doing great. I've got Judy Thompson here as well. Hi, Elena. Is it, I'm excited to talk to you today. Thank you, Judy, and you as well. So we'll, let's get right into it. Um, I'm excited to hear about your team, for one, but as a vascular access specialist and nursing leader, tell me about your team. How do you get to 12 FTEs, which I'm very jealous about? It's a matter of timing, and it's a matter of presenting why it makes outcome and financial sense. Um, we have a blended team, so we are RNs and uh, registered respiratory therapists, which is wonderful because I can choose the best of the best from either discipline. We are also interesting that we are a mobile service with some of our FTEs, and we recently expanded to the full 12 to cover night shift. Now, I will tell you that I have seven dedicated team members, and the other five are second position folks who are cross-trained to um, help us out with schedule holes, vacations, uh, FMLA, sick leave, et cetera. We have a very interesting complex of facilities where we have a hospital that runs about 200 census, another hospital that runs around 50, and another that runs around 10. And so between two day shift individuals and one night shift individual, we, we managed to cover all three hospitals. However, our smaller hospitals often have more critical coverage only. Now, I'm really interested in the blended model you just spoke about. I'm a huge advocate of a blended model. Tell us how that's worked and any pushback that you had gotten or received on that. Well, interestingly, Banner, Arizona, um, several years ago had an initiative where um, they felt it would be cost-saving to um, turn the team over to all registered respiratory therapists. However, here in Colorado, um, that really couldn't happen for many reasons. One, our registered respiratory therapists at the time were only placing, only doing ABGs. They were not even permitted to place art lines. So the experience that our current RN team at the time had, as opposed to the registered respiratory therapist, it made no sense to do that. And quite honestly, we were able to present a case that it makes no sense whatsoever, regardless of clinician licensure, to replace a highly experienced team with an inexperienced team. So we decided at that time for our respiratory therapists to work on getting a statement from the director of respiratory therapy in Colorado that they could be included on our team. And we decided to take a blended model approach. That was a few years ago and it took until, I believe it was 2017, uh, where one of our leaders whose background is in respiratory therapy was able to get the director in Colorado for respiratory therapy to go ahead and commit to saying that it was in scope of practice. And at that time, we chose to become a blended team based on the fact that the outcomes that the RTs were having once they gained experience down in Arizona were, was extremely good. 
and I can't say enough about the RTs that I have on our team. Uh, very, very knowledgeable individuals, very capable, and I'm very glad to have two disciplines when I interview so that I can choose the best of the best from both. That's amazing. And I, I believe it's not really about the initials behind your name. It's about passion and competency and having this as your career, not as your job. I believe that as well. And we have an interesting, I, as, as the manager of the team, I have an interesting complement of people that approach me that are interested in this. And they'll tell me for a variety of reasons. I want to get off my feet more to <laughs> access. I really dig doing this and I want to be a part of this. And so to the former, I say, this is not the job for you. I stand far more than I ever stood as a bedside nurse and to consistently anyway, I do. And to the, to the latter, I say, well, I will let you know when I have an opening. <laughs> That's wonderful. Let's talk about other teams that would like to do things such as you have, um, innovation and becoming a blended team, and also the ones that are short on resources and are trying to find the resources. Not only do you bring data, but you convert that data into what makes sense to your audience. For example, um, I know there's a lot of controversy about the lines that we call midlines, say six and 10 centimeter skinny little lines that are placed by accelerated cell or technique and whether or not they are cost effective, whether or not they cause thrombophlebitis, et cetera. Well, we implemented a program several years ago, and I recently had a conversation via a Facebook group that uh, this person is saying that it's cost prohibitive. Well, it's about three times at my facility the cost to put a PIC line in a patient who has no indication for a central line, simply because you can't get enough real estate in the vein to give peripherally indicated IV therapy. And so when I speak to my superiors, my financial people about this, I said, here's your short-term gain. So unfortunately, we live in a world where corporations look at this quarter and how we can reduce costs this quarter. So you've gotta learn how to speak in that language. And honestly, the outcomes follow that. I had a talk that I attended way back in the 90s when managed care was something that was concerning every hospital across the nation. And one of the doctors who I really respected, uh, Dr. Groves, said a statement that has stuck with me and has proven true time and time again. He was frustrated with managed care until he realized that the least expensive care is always the best care. So once you approach it from that standpoint and you put the dollars to it, I can tell you from my personal experience that proves out every time. That's interesting. Well, let, let's switch topics real quick here and talk about what's coming up for you guys. What are you planning? Now you've done a lot of changes. You've got blended, you've got FTEs. What's the new innovation you've got coming? Well, along with our FTEs came central line insertion. And so um, we actually... <laughs> trained eight people in a year to get to the size that we are now. And so, yes, a couple weeks ago, we had a big fat party celebrating that we're training our last person and we're live with our 24-7 coverage. Part of that 24-7 coverage is to help our physicians at night who are also covering three facilities, our intensivist and our anesthesiologist 
place central line access. And part of that is I have to be able to place the right line. I can't just throw a pick in everybody. So last November, about half our team was trained in central line placement, and the other half will be trained in January. I need all my new people to have some experience with central or with pick insertion before we do the class, so we're targeting January. Three of our team has been trained in art line insertion, and then about mid-year, next year, the rest of us will start inserting arterial lines. So right now, that's where we're at, and I have a 10 o'clock appointment to go talk to our volunteers about funding some practice model for us so that we wow. can put central lines in on a blue phantom prior to putting them in on real people. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. So you are working towards being a full-fledged vascular access specialty team. Absolutely. And it's been a dream of mine since I trained for central line insertion. That is wonderful. Um, I applaud you. That's great. I, I love the model. I hope it gets adopted across the world, the, especially across the U.S. We need it. I think vascular access specialists should be placing all the lines we'll have better outcomes. And I also, um, not to be politically incorrect, but hey, if you knew me, you would know that this is not going to stop me. I think we should look at registered respiratory therapists intubating all our patients too. I 100% agree. Let the specialists that do it all the time do it. So I'm in, I'm in your corner on that one. So let's talk about Vegas and our Ava scientific meeting. Tell me about what you're speaking on. I will be talking about a project that one of my team members actually approached me about a year ago and asked if he could look at gum mastic adhesive use to maintain dressing integrity. So they did a small study at our mid-size hospital, the one that runs about a census of 50, and we had some really good outcomes as far as the dressing adhering. One of the things that even I, um, as the person setting up the study and putting the parameters to it, didn't really take into consideration is that we had no CLABSEs to begin with at that hospital. So the fact that the massasol over three to four months did not prevent any CLABSEs, CLABSEs didn't really, our question didn't get answered. If you went from zero to zero, you haven't proven anything really. So what I did, then did is, all right, how do I apply best care equals best outcomes to this? So I looked at dollars and cents on this, and we actually found that adding the gum mastic adhesive to our central line dressing change kit saved money over changing the dressing early 35% of the time and saved nursing time irregardless of the presence or absence of CLAB-C. So at that point, we were able to say, hey, we're going to go ahead and implement this and use this system-wide. And at the same time, also this year, it timed out that our team took over the care and maintenance of lines. So we round on lines daily, central lines daily, and we do dressing changes when due or as indicated. And our hospital, our large hospital, has now had the longest run of being CLAB C free that it has ever had. So it could be the gum mastic adhesive, it could be us. I have a feeling it's a combination of both. People in practice and process. So I think you're covering the, the gambit on this, which is wonderful. Have you looked at the lineup for the scientific meeting? 
You know, it's funny. I, I, I have a very structured approach to my work, but when I approach these meetings, I kind of let them unfold as they happen. I'll <laughs> often have the meetings that I attend um, the night before. I do RSVP to the things that require that, that I know I'm going to, but as far as really picking anything out, I like to let it unfold as I go. So I do know, having been a very frequent AVA attendee, that it's going to be energizing, that it's going to be exciting, that there's going to be faces that I recognize, and there's going to be faces that I want to know there, and I'm going to learn things, and hopefully I can share some things. Sounds like it. I look forward to the same thing, and that's somewhat how I plan my meetings as well. So, and and we're having, I think, somewhere near 500 new attendees this year. So you'll see a lot of new faces. Anything else you can impart on our folks why they should be coming to our AVA Scientific meeting this year? I can just tell you that being part of any large corporation in America is very difficult these days. You add healthcare, and many of us came to healthcare or stayed in healthcare because we want to help people to that. And you really have a rendering of soul at times. And what I mean by that is sometimes the politics, the finances, the reality of the America and the healthcare environment that we live in get to you. Go to Ava and you will get energized. You will <laughs> find that you have peers that are excited to be there, that are excited to share with you, that want to learn from you, uh, that you can make connections and friendships for a lifetime, and you will come back having filled your cup back up a little bit, if not overflowing at times. So that's why I go. You learn new stuff too. It's cool. It's awesome. We try to stay on the cutting edge. Fewer and far between, most of it's reinforcing and validating what we do in our facilities, I'm glad to say. But I think that it's still that wealth and abundance of peer energy, all positive, that you walk away with. Well I couldn't have said it better. I couldn't have said it better. I appreciate every moment of your time today. It was wonderful to talk to you. And I can't wait to chat with you when we get back into Vegas. Great talking to you, Elena. As well. Thank you guys very, very much for all your time and effort that you do. And welcome to our first ever discussion of phlebotomy on the I Save That podcast. Uh, We're joined today by Dennis Ernst, who is a medical technologist and certified phlebotomist, as well as a leading authority on blood collection and vascular access. Dennis is a veteran of over 500 conference presentations, as well as the author of five books. So you could say he knows a little bit about phlebotomy. Uh, Dennis, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's good to hear. We're also joined by uh, Dr. Laurel Wirtz, uh, who is a nurse and vascular access expert, as well as a current member of the AVA Board of Directors. Uh, She has led phlebotomy teams uh, in her career, and she joins us from New York City today. Hi, Laurel. Hi, Ramsey. Hi, Dennis. I'll get us started by uh, discussing the traditional role of a phlebotomy, Dennis, and I'd like to hear this from you. Um, knowledge of pre-analytical factors, like what, how, how has phlebotomy come from its roots to where you see it today as an expert in the field? Phlebotomy's come a long way. Uh, as you know, we used to uh, 
take blood with leeches. So uh, uh, back in the dark ages, but uh, we're a whole lot more sophisticated now. We have a, a certified workforce of phlebotomists that are drawing blood samples for diagnostic purposes. Many states are getting on the bandwagon to require uh, those who draw blood samples to be certified and at least have minimum training requirements and certification. So there's an ever-increasing attention being paid to the roles phlebotomists play in healthcare, and especially for the continuity of the laboratory process. Uh, phlebotomists have traditionally, up until say 40 years ago, the laboratory professional do the blood samples because there was no quote-unquote phlebotomist position. Uh, over time, though, uh, in, an, in a concern for laboratory efficiencies and hospital efficiencies, this position was created so that we would have a laboratory professional who is focused solely and exclusively on, on collecting high-quality blood samples and delivering them to the testing personnel who could then extract an accurate test result. So we have this focused master of blood collection procedures and vascular access for the purpose of diagnostic sampling who really uh, can who really is well placed to be part of that patient care continuum so that patients are diagnosed medicated managed according to blood samples that have not been altered during the collection process. And there's many ways that uh, those who draw blood samples can change the test result just by how they're drawing it, um, how they're handling it, how they're transporting it, how they're processing it. So this is a really key aspect of delivering quality patient care and letting physicians have the accurate information they need to treat their patients. It's one of the one of the most well published statistics that you see is that the laboratory uh, that laboratory test results are responsible for 70% of the the objective information a physician receives on their patient's health status. That puts a huge responsibility on those who draw the samples to make sure that they're not corrupting them and the subsequent test results in the process. So phlebotomists get that. They're specialists in what they do. And now we're seeing an even greater utility for phlebotomists in coming and working closer with the nursing prof profession to help them extract samples from vascular access devices. So their usefulness now is expanding well beyond the laboratory to be part of that nursing team because they are specialists in, in inserting needles into veins in such a manner that they obtain high quality samples. They bring that expertise to the, to the side of the nurse and helps the nurse uh, uh, work her magic as well. That's a win-win team right there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Dennis, you know what it was making me think of is I've managed phlebotomy teams before and vascular access teams, which are typically, you know, registered nurses. Um, but the most effective model I ever saw was exactly what you just described, where there was a very close connection between the phlebotomy team and the vascular access team. They were actually in the same department and functioning together as an expert team 
uh, building off of uh, one another and and their professional expertise. It was when you really got to see that flywheel going of interdisciplinary uh, relationships and team building, and the outcomes certainly followed. So I would wholeheartedly agree and could attest to that in my own work-life experience. Oh, you are exactly right. You nailed it, Laurel, because isn't it a beautiful thing when we get two formerly unassociated professions coming together at the patient's side for the benefit of, of patient care. I mean, we're really in unprecedented times in this because when we bring these two disciplines together um, and things work to, things will work to the benefit of the patient. And that takes, that takes a quality of care uh, to a whole new level. And it really explodes the boundaries uh, of patient care because it eliminates a lot of the friction that used to exist between the nursing and the laboratory professions. And it's, it's bridging those two expertises. And um, I'm very excited about what that means for both professions, but especially for, for patients and their physicians. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and for Ava, I wrote a, an article on Java a couple of issues ago uh, called Leave No Vein Behind. And I just got really curious coming out of, um, it wasn't the physical. I had to give blood for us changing insurances. And, and my phlebotomist uh, started asking me what I did for a living. And I talked about working for Ava. And uh, in the meantime, you know, I was in my kitchen table and, and it was a very unconventional uh, interaction with, with a phlebotomist. And I started to wonder what kind of, uh, what kind of role vessel health and preservation has for, I think you told me before, Dennis, 300,000 phlebotomists in, in the U.S. Am I, am I right on that number? Yeah, that's right. That's my estimate. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a, it's a good transition into one of the, the real passionate uh, plays within the Association for Vascular Access, and that is uh, reducing sticks and, and, and vessel health and preservation. What, uh, what kind of alignment, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with, with this uh, for, for you to both discuss, the alignment to the vascular access community and reducing sticks, um, and that, that also feeds into guys drawing blood from central lines, drawing blood traditionally from, from, uh, from the vein. How, how do we align or how can we better align a phlebotomy to the vascular access community? Well, I'll tell you, I think there's multitude of benefits when, when, we, when we can do this because when the traditional way of, of drawing laboratory samples by venipuncture is, is inherently dangerous for both the patient and the phlebotomist. So the more that we can avoid a, a needle the better off we are, the better off the patients are. See, because the, the, the phlebotomists are, would be less uh, uh, likely to sustain an accidental needle stick, and uh, patients are less likely to sustain injuries. One of the things I do, not because I like to or even want to, but this is, a, this is an, an, an aspect of my work that found me. I didn't go seeking it. But after I was in the field for a while as an educator and an author, uh, attorneys started contacting me to consult with them on cases of phlebotomy-related litigation or phlebotomy-related injuries. And it astounded me the nature and the extent to which patients are being injured during what you and I think of as a simple venipuncture. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're seeing nerve, uh, complicated nerve injuries that are, the, that are lifelong. We, we see injuries from patients passing out and breaking, fracturing bones and, and spines. Uh, we're seeing uh, arterial lacerations. So, so whenever, uh, whenever we have to obtain blood by venipuncture, we're adding multiple risks to, to the patient and to the phlebotomist. So I, I'm really in favor of drawing more blood 
from an existing line or during uh, 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 the insertion of a line for those reasons alone. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think it's a risk versus benefit. You know, uh, when we talk uh, in the vascular access community right now, we talk a lot about central line associated bloodstream infections, which are a serious risk to, to patients' right. Uh, mortality, right? And, and yep, so, you, you know, we weigh the, the risk versus benefits in terms of what's better here, um, whether it's venipuncture uh, for that blood sample or is accessing the line. Uh, better and and we have still a lot more to to understand in the literature and the research, uh, but what we're starting in the very beginning stages to understand is that minimizing the number of connections and disconnections to the central line is important. Okay, as well as the education and competency of those who are accessing the line to make sure that they're caring and maintaining that line appropriately to decrease or mitigate any risk uh, related to infection. So I think all those things need to be weighed. Uh, but one of the things that always stands out in my mind is, you know, we, we in vascular access, we always talk about uh, pr preserving the vessel, right? And vessel preservation. And what we have to remember right, is that right. any damage to the vessel is irreparable damage. Many times we forget phlebotomy sticks or vessel damage. It's irreparable uh -huh. damage every time we're sticking. Uh, it's irreparable damage every time we are sticking the vein. And, and that's important for us uh, to, to understand in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Yep. It, it sure is. And I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent because the, uh, as I mentioned, the, the risk to the phlebotomist and the, and the patient, uh, you were, you were right on target there to, to elaborate on the, the risk to the, to the patient when it comes to drawing blood from a line and accessing mm -hmm. the lines multiple times. Mm -hmm. uh, and additionally, uh, it, when we're accessing a line multiple times to obtain blood samples, we're also exsanguinating the patient. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a huge, huge uh, concern right now in professional circles to minimize the amount of, of diagnostic sampling that we're doing because it's, it's patients, pediatric patients, oncology patients, and, and ICU, CCU patients, they're, they're at high risk for developing anemia just because we're drawing too much blood to test them. So, so yes, we do need to, to minimize uh, the number of venipunctures, but we also need to, at the same time, minimize the number of times we access a line and the volume that we're we're taking. So I, so all of this kind of segues into let's bring the pay, the the physician into this as well, and let them realize that you got to minimize the 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 amount of testing that you that you do on these critical patients sure. because you can't sh you can't shotgun a diagnosis anymore by ordering everything and 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 see what sticks. Yeah, so we, right. we have, we, as, as, so it's like the the laboratory, the nursing profession, and the physicians. We've all got to come together around the line, around the vascular access device, and and plot our strategy forward mm -hmm. so that all of these risks are minimized. Yeah, mm. I, I agree completely on the uh, minimizing uh, the diagnostic sampling. You know, I've worked in teaching facility now for the last uh, eleven years. And what we traditionally see is that patients are getting routine lab work every morning, every evening, and mm -hmm. it begs the question, do we really need those lab samples every single day uh, really? to treat our patients, right? And so we it recently sure 
Yeah. So recently at this, at our organization, we had a huge project where we wanted to, you know, minimize the uh, daily routine sampling and be more purposeful. And the multidisciplinary team got together, started communicating about lab sampling and when it was necessary. And, and they were actually able to decrease not only the, the number of times that we were sticking patients and being more purposeful and meaningful uh, about their diagnostic sampling. But you know what we saw as a secondary benefit was a financial benefit. It's oh, costly. Yeah. There's not only the time of the clinician, whoever it may be who's gaining the sample, but it's the products uh, used to sample uh, and then to process it in the lab. Um, and all of oh, that time is very costly. You're not kidding. So uh, we found a secondary benefit of, you know, uh, streamlining our diagnostic sampling practices uh, to be a financial benefit as well, which was win-win for us. So, oh, absolutely. Yep, mm -hmm. I I know, and I'm glad you brought that up because you you probably have seen this study, and maybe you too, Ramsey. But there was a a report uh, that was published that showed how wasteful it is for physicians to order rainbows you know what i mean <laughs> when they order a rainbow yeah, draw every tube of every color because i don't really know what i'm going to order yet right and, right. and that's 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 the shotgun approach we talked about so so when a physician orders a rainbow and you get the phlebotomist coming in or, or the nurse drawing from a line six tubes purple green hmm. blue red yellow plaid mm -hmm. polka dot whatever that's that's way too much blood and they yeah. the, the study showed that that uh the num that only four percent of the extra tubes ordered are ever used for testing Ugh. the rest yeah, gets so thrown, thrown away and mm -hmm. so we we've got to address that and the, and the place where this monster lives and has to be controlled first and foremost, and where it's hardest to control, are in teaching hospitals where the residents come in, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're new on the job, they've got all this book knowledge, and they just order rainbows all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's where iatrogenic anemia lives mm -hmm. in the fullest form. It's got to be addressed everywhere across the healthcare spectrum. But if we can minimize uh, vascular access and volumes across the board, we would take great strides. Yeah, agreed. For sure. As someone who has donated many rainbows, 4% four, <laughs> is still echoing in my head, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But, that, I mean, that, that just hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good around needles, which I think is a job requirement for <laughs> my, my yeah, current I would, employer. I, I, uh, I would say. But I'm, I know that you know, a lot of people aren't. And, and when you're sitting there with the needle dwelling and, and you try not to make eye contact with, with your own uh, matter, leaving your body into a tube that 96% of it's just going to end up in a has hazard bin. We could be doing better. You know, speaking of doing better and, and, and I'll, I'll close out uh, this great discussion with, with this question for, for you, Dennis, and, and for you also, uh, Laurel, uh, the role of phlebotomists in, I'll talk about AVA, but also the vascular access continuum. We, we can, I think, all agree that healthcare is fairly siloed from, uh, in, on the AVA side of things, traditionally, we talk about the gaps between insertion and then care and maintenance and then the non-acute journey that a patient goes on uh, with their vascular access device. What, what kind of a role, idealistically, could, could we see phlebotomy playing in the vascular access continuum? 
I think that there's an opportunity to bolster this relationship, as we had alluded to in the beginning of our conversation. It's when you have all members of the healthcare team uh, working in tandem together, not siloed, uh, is when we see better outcomes. We've proven that over and over again in the literature. And I think we have a huge opportunity in vascular access to embrace the role of uh, the phlebotomist and their expertise in helping us to, to continue to bolster those relationships. I think it's an opportunity for us um, that we're not there yet. And, and so I think it's exciting that we're even starting these conversations about how we can best work together and, and partner together, especially through, uh, through Ava. Yeah, this is, this is neat stuff. Yeah, 100% agreement there. And I think Ava is really at the at the cutting edge of of this this new paradigm where where we actually get hand-in-hand cooperation between two disciplines in healthcare that are essential to the patient, the the, the laboratory phlebotomist and the nurse. The nurses are the the they're the backbone of healthcare and the phlebotomist I refer to as the backbone of the laboratory. Mm-hmm. And when we get these two pillars together working together for uh for good continuity of the lines and for successful for successful uh blood uh, diagnostic blood sampling and if we can infuse in their longer dwelling times for those lines then then we really start to get some traction uh, and and we know there's we know there's technology out there that facilitates good clean blood sampling from a line and and it's been shown uh, the reports are coming out saying that because those because that was oh, that technology lines are being flushed more frequently and they're lasting longer so when we get the 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 phlebotomist who is a who is an expert on accessing veins and pulling blood out of them working side by side with the nurse who is an expert at the the overall picture uh, of how the patient is progressing and how those fluids are essential to their well-being and their healing, well, then we get patients that are subjected to shorter hospitalization and the risks associated with hospitalization. They get better care. They're less likely to develop anemia. Their lines are, are patent for, for much longer. They have less invasive procedures. I just really am excited about what can happen when vascular access specialists, being nurses and phlebotomists, get together and strategize for the, the betterment of patient care and the quality outcomes, we really have a lot to be excited about and a lot to be optimistic about because this is a new day. When we start bringing these people together, it's a new day, folks. And and I I, I I'm so thrilled to see that that uh, Ava's taking the steps to bring it together, and only good things can come from it. There's a lot of low hanging fruit out there that's ready f- to be plucked, and I think we're in a good place to do that. I'm keenly interested in how you just closed the discussion, Dennis. I I do think it is a new day, and I do think that Ava can take a prominent role in advancing the, the kind of, uh, you refer to it as a paradigm uh, that, that we can see shifting toward a more cohesive uh, experience, not just for, for clinical um, experience, but the patient one. 
uh, where where phlebotomy and, and vascular access are concerned. Exactly. So, yep. And, and one last benefit is that when we get these two disciplines together, we bridge a gap that has never been bridged before. Because historically, everybody can tell you on both sides of the fence, nurses and the laboratories have kind of had a, a, a love-hate relationship, right? We are mm -hmm. all working towards the same thing, but unfortunately, we've got these obstacles in the way. At, at the laboratory being sample-centric and the nursing profession being patient-centric, both of those are key to the patient's healing and well-being. But unfortunately, there's some friction there. But when we bring phlebotomists in working closely with the nurses for quality samples through vascular access, then the rest kind of starts falling away and we forget mm -hmm. about those that, that friction. And that's what really excites me the most. Same. If, if it was easy, it would have already been done. Uh, <laughs> exactly, it, it, exactly. It, it, it comes down to the patient. And uh, I'll be talking about this at our scientific meeting coming up in Las Vegas. The patient doesn't care about any sort of squabbles or, or provinciality. Or, or the vanity, or, or any any lack of cohesion on the clinical side. They just they just want to be okay. They just don't want to be yeah. hurt. That's right. And they so, want to go home, and they want to they want to feel better. Right. And we're we're going to take a, an active role in that. Uh, so I, I appreciate your time today. To learn more about the, the great work that Dennis does, uh, he has a really easy website to remember, guys. It's phlebotomy.com. It's the, the Center uh, for <laughs> Phlebotomy Education. Very tough one to, to, to uh, forget there. Uh, he is right. Dennis Ernst. Uh, thank you, Dennis, and thank you, Laurel, uh, for this collaborative discussion on phlebotomy today. Thank you, guys. Very good. It was fun. Thank you. And we're joined today by Lee Steer, who's a certified registered nurse infusion and also vascular access board certified. He's been leading the IV team at Hartford Hospital for 15 years, and uh, he will be presenting at the upcoming AVA Scientific Meeting in Las Vegas. Uh, Lee Steer, thank you for joining us on the on the podcast today. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Hi, Lee. This is Judy Thompson from AVA as Hi, well. Judy. How are you? I'm good. So, Lee, we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. Um, not only is our AVA Scientific Meeting coming up, and it's the largest one we've ever had, little secret there, but let's talk about your practice. As a vascular access specialist and a nursing leader, what are you doing that's innovative and exciting about the structure of your team you'd like to talk about? You know, my team is definitely expanding um, quite a bit, especially over the last five years. Um, not that we're really doing any, what I'm going to focus on is more about peripheral IV insertions. And not that it's innovative, but I do believe that every vast out there has this idea and vision. And, and that is really to be able to manage all peripheral IV insertions in their facilities. So uh, just about two months ago, my team did take over all the PIV insertions on inpatient units here at Hartford Hospital. And basically what we do is we round daily on every new admit so that we can perform an early vascular access assessment. Our focus um, is really on patient safety and patient satisfaction. We want to see that the right device being inserted is based is inserted based on guidelines, so making sure that we're avoiding points of flexions, hitting the vessels with bigger walls and, and better flow rates, and that we are using the best-in-class medical devices to assure we can leave in safely until they are clinically ready for removal. Recently created a best practice bundle. We call it the we called it the PIV 5R. Um, we have tested and validated that this evidence-based bundle protects patients, extends dwell time, and reduces IV-related complications. So 
So we're definitely improving patient care. I know that we have control now that we have control over insertions on a large number of our patients. We are beginning to discuss, discuss other innovative ideas that will further produce value for our team as well as continue to improve patient care. That's exciting. You you're living the dream. You're doing what every <laughs> vascular access specialist is dreaming of doing. So yeah, we're very excited. Really I are. applaud you. This is this is wonderful. So how did you implement these changes? Basically, we started with a vision and we really wanted to, so not that long ago, we had, our policy was that we were going to, um, we would change peripheral IV sites from a routine site rotation to removal when clinically indicated. We wanted to do this for, you know, the patient, but we also knew that with our current state and, you know, current state is very similar to where every, you know, hospital or, or facility is at. We train every new nurse to put in IVs. They get minimal training in school. You know, we give them the best we can in a very short period of time and orientation. But at the end of the day, you know, they're still placing the IVs where they're comfortable and where they can see, and that's generally in the antecubital fossa or the hand. So that we felt, you know, despite that the literature and there are studies that have been done out there that says it's safe to go clinically indicated, um, we felt that we really wanted to do our homework first and come up with the best practice bundle. So, um, and to demonstrate that only those who consistently practice insertions will use the bundle correctly. You can put the best medical devices in the hands of any nurse, but the reality is, it is if they're not going to do their part and make sure it's in the right vessel, in the right location, then all that money you spent on those medical devices are really kind of kind of a waste. So we uh, so we wanted to make sure that we get the right results, being consistent. So we put together the bundle, wrote a, wrote a study protocol, got IRB approval to perform a study comparing the generalist model to a VAST using a bundled approach, and we collected the data. And once we were done, all our results were statistically significant. Um, so we put a high-level presentation with our results after conducting a cost analysis of IV therapy per bed per year. And now um, that's what got us to where we are today in placing pre-IVs on all the inpatient units. Really? Did you publish that? It is uh, almost. Uh, Not yet. It's on its way. I can Thank guarantee you. you people are going to start Googling your name for that study. So, Great. oh, yeah, my wait, goodness. Well, it's, it's not about so, the fame. It's all about just spreading, you know, what people are doing out there. And, uh, and we're happy to share what, what, what's happening here. And hopefully we inspire others. So we always hear these, you know, there's not enough money. There's not enough budget. And I know the business case is made for this. I wrote one back in the day that clearly showed an advantage of more vascular access specialists doing all the work, but tell me about yours. I'm sure you wrote a business case for this. Yes, we did. So, you know, first of all, we wanted to get the results and, and it was the goal. We wanted to go clinically indicated, but we also wanted to make sure that it was, you know, we showed value in the, having a vascular access specialist doing the IV insertions. Um, and, you know, that's really what I, I try to tell everybody. You got to understand what is the, what is the hospital's key strategic initiatives? What are their key strategic goals? Most of them are on patient satisfaction, reducing um, the cost of care, and reducing hospital-acquired infection. So with the results of the study, um, you know, we, we got a success rate of 89% of our catheters lasting from the beginning to the end of therapy with a very low complication rate of only 11%. And then we decided, and basically what we kind of did is we worked with our, my, with, with our CFO and our CNO to try to get everybody to agree on a cost per bed per IV therapy, because most leaders out there have no idea. They, it's just all part of doing business. 
Um, you know, it's an accepted, you know, practice that we put them in, they fail, we put in another one. So we really tried to dive deep into looking at it from not only a supply cost, but also from a nursing time. And that's where, you know, it, the, the savings came out to be quite significant at about $2.9 per year. Um, again, that was a lot of um, saved nursing time, which was good because what it did, ha what instead of my leadership team saying, okay, we're going to just give you five FTEs, we basically looked at how much time nursing was spending putting IVs in, and then we just reallocated those F some of those FTEs into the IV team. So actually, there was no net increase in the overall nursing budget, which made my CNO very happy. So. It's really kind of knowing what, what are the strategic goals, focusing on them and trying to bring, you know, value to what we do. And that and that all just happens with data collection. That's wonderful. And also your leadership is wonderful because many models don't look at the soft costs. They think nursing time, it's it's absorbed. So right. I, I'm impressed. Well, so I will say one thing, you know, with with our study, with every patient that we that consented and we admitted to it, we always were taking pictures. So we were able to take the pictures of the generalist model IV site, and then we were also able to take pictures of the sites that we put in using the bundled approach. And every single assessment that we did, we took a picture of it, um, and that'll actually be in in our in our study publication. So. You know, as my CNO said to me, a picture is worth a thousand words. And that that's all she had to see was a bunch of waste and uh, very, you know, no consistency in the generalist model. And then when she saw what we were, what my team was capable of doing, she really had no questions at that point. She just knew it was the right thing to do for the patient. I'm excited to see your publication. Will that be in Java? Yes, it will be. I was sure hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> very <laughs> good. Because the, the, steps other teams can make i'm assuming i'm hoping they'll be in that paper as well they will and we're actually um and this kind of jumps to the ava that's uh, going in las vegas when my presentation on doubling down on iv teams is really what we're trying what we're going to really try to do is give people tools that they can take home with them um, that hopefully will help them be able to produce a business case to be able to go to their administration to justify, you know, getting some type of team back, maybe not a, you know, 22 FTE team compared to the three that they may have, but, you know, hopefully some growth in size. I'm excited to see it. I'll be there for sure. The work you've done um, with dressing surveillance and implementing strategy that improved dressing adherence and reducing bloodstream infections, what are some of the steps you took specifically? So again, one of the things that, you know, when we were going to go clinically indicated, we really wanted to make sure that we were protecting those sites from any IV related complications. So for example, we wanted to make sure that if we were going to put in an IV site, leave it in there, you know, till seven days for when it needed to be redressed, we wanted to make sure that the dressing was, um, had some type of antimicrobial properties to it. We know that occlusion is one of the biggest complications um, with failing IVs. So we made sure that we got the um, one of the best in-class um, needleless connectors, at least you know from my standpoint, it's, um, the anti-reflux needleless connector, so that we would prevent blood from refluxing back and forth. The dressing that we also chose added securement. 
what we are continually doing and what we're trying to do right now is refine our bundle even further. So we, you know, we put the bundle in place, we got great results, we're happy with it, but one thing that we feel is lacking is something that will allow those dressings to stay in place for, for greater than seven days. So we just recently did a point prevalence study here. We went around, probably saw about 200 vascular access devices, peripheral, central, and we found that 55% of the dressings were starting to either lift partially, um, become partially becoming partially detached, and then we even found some that where they were fully detached, and the catheter was definitely exposed. So we, act, I did a presentation to our clinical value team, and we um, they blessed me um, with the ability to go do a um, couple week trial using one of the adhesive devices to try to get those dressings to stay, because we all know that unplanned dressing changes increases our CLABSI rate, uh, or will increase the chances of a patient getting a CLABSI by, I think it's threefold um, with some right. of the recent literature out there. So, so right. we're always and trying to refine the bundle. You know, we're just going to keep doing that until we have the, the perfect ingredient that we think that will be effective, you know, for patients. So once, if the adhesive works, when we're actually very confident that, that it will, because I've seen it um, work um, in other areas, other institutions, with some, some great studies done on it. We plan on uh, making sure that that gets into all our central line kits as well as our peripheral IV kits so that we make sure that we're consistently using it. All right, so 55%, and that, and that is honestly a decent number. I mean, it's not great, and that's not what we yeah. ever want to see. We want to see 100% of our lines being adherent the whole time. But as you just pointed out, Timsit did publish on, I think it's after the second, um, after the second unplanned dressing change, the chance for catheter-related bloodstream infection increased threefold. I no, believe those I are the numbers, but wow. No, um, uh, you know, we're not, we have to protect our patients. That's the bottom line. We have to do whatever we can. And, you know, unfortunately, I think places do struggle with getting the right medical devices into their facility because, again, cost. I mean, none of, you know, the better the, better the product, the more it's going to cost. So, again, it's trying to show that that value and and um and that really does come and it comes with data collection and and um as I, one of my favorite quotes is uh without without data you're just another person with an opinion and that's that was me for years until I really started to be able to have a team that was large enough that we could start to actually go out there and collect meaningful data to present to our leadership team agreed it's data 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 so um <laughs> let's switch over to the scientific meeting real quick because I okay. want to be cognizant of your time. And so I have a couple more questions for you. So have you looked through the schedule for Ava yet, our scientific meeting? Um, a little bit, not to, not to the fullest extent, so. Okay. Well, I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you have any <laughs> sessions that you really, you're excited about going to? Or have you not looked at it enough yet? I haven't looked enough to, uh, to decide what my schedule is going to be like. But um, there, there's always... You know, it's, it's the great thing about it. It's, it's, I've been to so many conferences. It's very easy to navigate. The support's there if you need it as a first-time attendee. So it's um, sometimes I make it on the plane ride there. I my sometimes plan. do that too. <laughs> I uh, don't miss the last session. We're talking about ultrasound reprocessing, which is going to be a hot topic. Oh, that that's for sure. Well, just by the fact that you told me that's happening, I'll be there. Yay! So, <laughs> so we so much look forward to seeing you there. I can't wait to see your presentation. 
and um, safe travels. I hope all of uh, our listeners are going to meet us in Vegas. It's going to be a fun show. Absolutely. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thank you again to our panel of guests for Episode 11 of Season 2 of the I Save That podcast. Elena Nelson-Squires, Dennis Ernst, and Lee Steer. If you haven't already made travel plans or registered for the 2019 AVA Scientific Meeting at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, there's still time. Just head to avainfo.org annual. Thank you to Eloquist Healthcare for sponsoring this episode, and thanks as always to Dabney Coleman. See everyone in Vegas. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the Fair Use Doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.